Now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, picking up again in our study through 1 Corinthians. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you that today we can come into your presence, that we can bring with us all of the things that have plagued and hurt and troubled us this week and made us anxious and we can come, we can confess our sins, we can sing our praises to you, we can now hear your word read and taught and then we can eat at your table. So for all of these wonderful, glorious things, we give you thanks and praise. Now in this time of study, we pray that you would deliver us from distraction, that you would deliver me from all error as Uh, We think through these things, and we pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why? Because I said so. If you're a parent, you've uttered those words at some point in your tenure as parent, and sometimes in any uh, position of authority, you've had to say at some point, in so many terms, why are we doing this? Because I said so. As a parent, when you utter those words, it's usually after that long stream of why questions, right? That that question, you know, why do we have to go to bed? Uh, Because, you know, we've got school in the morning. But why do we have to go to school? Because I want you to be a human. I want you to, you know, think and and be able to work and be a productive member of society one day. Well, why do you want me to be a productive member of society? Because I don't want to raise a felon. That's why. Uh, Well, why don't you want me to be a felon? Because I said so. That's why. End of conversation. I'm the dad. You're the child. Brush your teeth. Go to bed. Conversation over. Usually we tolerate a few questions, but when the kids are stalling or they're trying to get out of obedience, it's not time for rational conversation any longer. It's time to do what I say. I'm the dad. That's why. You don't need any further explanation. It doesn't mean that you're a mean parent. When you do that, it's because you're exercising your God-given authority in the life of the child. And given the amount of time, resources, sacrifices we invest in our children, there ought to be a kind of a capital built up in there where I can say what needs to be done and it gets done. You can trust my judgment. This is good for you. I'm not going to tell you things that are bad for you. So, you know, every once in a while, I don't have to explain my rationale behind everything. I'm just going to say it and you're going to do it because I'm the dad. That's why. And that's how we're going to do this. Well, we're all common and uh, that's all common to us. And we're familiar with, with, uh, the, the times where we have to exercise our authority. And that's what Paul is doing in this chapter of 1 Corinthians. In this section, his discourse is heating up. He started out gently enough. He encouraged the Corinthians to rethink their position and the danger that they've put themselves in by their uh, unhappy, uh, unholy divisions. But now he's wrapping up his, uh, his initial comments. He's wrapping up his opening statements about their fractious 
schismatic, divisive spirit. And now, now he's leading into, going into his authority as an apostle before he has to say some other very difficult things to them. And so as a way of putting this argument to rest before, before picking up the next thing, his final argument is this. I'm not going to argue with you. My argument is I'm not going to argue with you. Here's a command. Stop this destructive behavior. Why? I'll tell you why. Because in so many ways, I am your father. I was the first one there in Corinth. I was the one who labored to start the church. I was the one who brought you into the faith as your spiritual father. And so I'm putting my foot down and I'm saying, knock it off. Stop this this wicked, silly, ridiculous behavior that, that you've cultivated there, that is calling into question my authority over you as, as an apostle and as your spiritual father. Now, Paul is not, he's not just pulling rank on them. He's not shaming them into compliance and submission. In fact, before the end of this chapter, he even says that explicitly. He says, this is not to shame you. He is, however, affirming for them his authority as an apostle amid all of these voices. There are all these people clamoring for attention and leadership and power and influence in the church. And so he's, he's working to speak through the clutter and let them know his deep abiding care for them and his heartfelt desire that they grow and mature and get through all this immaturity and all this downright wickedness that they're mired in. And so he begins this section with a few words about judgment. In particular, he writes about the way that human judgment is not reliable and that the Lord is the final judge. Now, we can infer from what he writes here that some ugly things have been said, perhaps written about Paul, and, and those things are, are making their way back to him. And perhaps some of these ugly things that have been said were written by those who are in the Peter fan club or those who are in the Apollos fan club. So Paul writes, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Uh, see, there's, there's something in that, that it's a small thing that I should be judged by you. We don't know what exactly, but something has been said and it's gotten back to Paul. And his response to that is, it really doesn't matter how people cast judgments on me. It doesn't matter the judgments that you pass against me. It doesn't mean that he wasn't hurt by the criticism, only he was not moved by it. He's not going to change what he does based on the mean things that have been said, the unkind, cruel things. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't change his demeanor. He doesn't change his approach or his instruction. He only asks, what is it if you judge me? I don't even judge myself. Some of the content here, I think, will be encouraging for many of you uh, who, like me, sometimes fear the judgment of other people. Uh, we, we allow this fear of other people and what they say or think to take up a lot of real estate in our heads. And we, it's a conscious, deliberate effort to push that aside and say, you know what, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what people think or say if what I'm doing is faithful and I'm pleasing God with my life, with my time, and with my resources. Uh, and so here you see Paul just working through this exercise and say, you know what, it really doesn't matter what you judge. In fact, I don't even trust my own judgment. My judgment uh, comes from the Lord. So hear how he defends his position and his authority. He says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Earlier in this letter, he used the word servant 
diakonos for himself. The word diakonos is the word, uh, of course, that's the root of our word deacon today. Uh, and so it just means, diakonos just means servant or slave. But he uses a different word for servant here. He doesn't say diakonos here. He uses a word that's literally translated under rower. Um, one of the slaves in the bottom of the ship who pulls these massive oars. If you've ever seen the movie Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston, I haven't seen the new one, so I don't know if that scene is in the new one. But in the old one, the Charlton Heston Ben-Hur, you have that mental image of the slaves working in the bottom of the, of the ship pulling the oars. And that's what he calls himself here. I am an under rower. That's the way I want you to think of me and the other teachers who God has called to help you. I'm not the captain of the ship. I'm the guy in the bottom of the boat, sweating and slaving away. I'm not even the chief rower. I'm the under rower. And then he uses the word steward as well. So I'm an under rower and I'm a steward. Uh, Paul is always famously mixing metaphors and he just throws all these images at us and we pull them apart and say, yes, you're this and you're also this. So I'm an under rower. I'm, I don't have any fame or prestige. I'm not the captain of the ship. I'm just working in the gal. I'm working down underneath the ship. But he also used the word steward, which is the word that uh, refers to the chief servant who supervised a large estate. Rich, rich landowners would put one of their most trustworthy servants in charge over the other servants uh, so, that, so that he would manage them and manage the whole estate. And the steward would be placed between the master and the other servants. So in relationship to the master, this steward is still a slave. In relationship to the slaves, however, he is a master and has some authority. So Paul said, I'm, I'm the steward of the mysteries of God, the mysteries that we surveyed when we looked at the book of Ephesians. He says, I'm a steward of those mysteries. Slaves don't own the treasure, but they can only do with it what they've been told to do. I've been put in charge over the treasure and over you, and I have uh, been given this responsibility. So Paul says, now when you think of me, think, think of me in this way. I'm a servant. I'm a, the, the least of the least in the ship, and, and I'm not a lord, and I'm not a king, and I'm not a captain, but I'm a slave, but I have been given some responsibility. As a steward, I have some responsibility over you and over the treasure, the truth, the mysteries of God. In verse 2, he says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. That is the standard. Faithfulness is the standard, not perfection, not your definition of status, not your definition of success or worldly excellence. Faithfulness, that is what God requires. And so Paul's ministry has been called into question by these people. He responds in verse 3. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Paul expresses this incredible clarity of purpose and resolution that those who labor for Jesus should be expected to, to should, should expect to be ultimately judged by the Lord and not regard self-appointed human tribunals to carry any kind of special weight or importance. God is the one who judges me in the end. Now, I'll step back for just a minute and say if we rip this out of context, we can get all kinds of unhelpful conclusions in a lot of different directions. It would be very easy to misapply this. 
Because there are people, and you know them, and we've all known them and had to deal with them, that act like they're above any instruction whatsoever. They say, only, only God can judge me. Uh, they don't submit to the brethren. They don't listen to any counsel. When everybody is telling them how foolish and how destructive they are, and so they, they kind of use the same mentality, only God can judge me. But that's not what's going on in Paul's case, and that's not what he's advocating. What he's saying is that it's not up to the Corinthians who are full of factions and squabbles and putting up all kinds of, of, of wicked behaviors and, and, and being proud of these things. It's, it's not up to them to make an evaluation of how good a teacher Paul is or how good of an apostle he is. They're full of obvious glaring errors and they're calling Paul's credibility into question. How dare they, right? On what are they basing their judgments of him? This is not one-on-one intimate counsel that they're offering Paul. It's this distant criticism and this unsolicited judgment that they're simply lobbying at him. What he calls into question here then is the ultimate value of human judgment. That's why Paul says, you know what, I don't, I don't even judge myself. The Christian is to be judged by his master. That's why introspection alone is unreliable. When you start to consider your own actions and thoughts and work to try to know yourself, you look inside and one of two things start to happen. You either begin to depress yourself with, with all, of the, all of the awfulness and all the ugly things that you find inside yourself. You either begin to depress yourself with the lack of progress that you're making in areas that you wish that you were making so much more progress, or you begin to exalt yourself. You kind of wallpaper over the ugly parts and you say, I'm really okay and I'm really fine. After all, this is why I did this and this is why I do that, and it's all, it's all good. Neither route is really helpful. Neither should we depress ourselves or exalt ourselves. Our reasoning is flawed. Our perspectives are flawed. We are uh, influenced by so many factors, and, and everything is so subjective when we start rooting around in ourselves, by ourselves, without any outside uh, correction or instruction. We start to question our questions. We, we start to doubt our doubts. We, we overlook things that other people see so readily. And the things that we think are flaws are sometimes charming to other people. And the things we think are great, in fact, are really offensive and off-putting. The point is, our self-judgment is not conclusive. We need scripture. We need other faithful counselors. Now, if we can't judge ourselves rightly and reliably, and if we're limited in how well we can know our own mind, how can we offer unsolicited, unqualified, uninformed judgment to another Christian? How can we do that? How can we judge the church? How, how could anyone trust the judgment of these Corinthians who were overcome with wickedness and perversion and they weren't repenting of it? They were proud of it. They were puffed up. Why would you believe them? Paul says something to Titus. He says this in uh, Titus 1. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. To those, listen closely, who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and their conscience is defiled. Do you trust the judgment of somebody whose mind and conscience is defiled? Do you trust the judgment of someone who, uh, uh, to, for whom nothing is pure? Uh, 
is the kind of person that will take a good, loving overture from someone and twist it and call it evil. Oh yeah, you did that thing, but you were really self-motivated and you're being you know, uh, 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 self-exalting and you did that to me actually to hurt me. You did that good thing to hurt me. That's what the unbelieving mind does. That's what the defile does. That's when the, the one with the conscience and the mind that is twisted, their judgment is warped and can't be trusted. You cannot trust the judgment of a warped mind. Remember this when you hear criticisms of the church from people who find the gospel offensive. There are people who think the Bible is a joke and ridicule the scriptures and then have the boldness and the, and the, uh, the, the, the self-confidence to criticize the church and lo- lob accusations and allegations against her. And, and then we believe them when they say somebody in the church hurt them. Oh, that must be true. Somebody in the church must have hurt you. Well, no, let's step back and listen for just a minute. Let's establish it. Maybe somebody did, but let's, let's figure out what exactly happened. You know, and usually when you press a little bit, you find out that there's, you know, it's a really different story than what they're telling you. Uh, the point is um, a, a person with a perverted and distorted and corrupt mind will even take good things and turn them into evil things, will turn them into um, offense. So the people in Corinth who are putting up with all this wickedness are saying that Paul has been offensive to them because their minds are corrupt. Just to be clear, when Paul says, I don't even judge myself, it doesn't mean that we never search our hearts. It doesn't mean that we never evaluate things. It doesn't mean that we never uh, understand who we are and where we are and what we're doing. But it does mean that we don't consider our own judgments or the judgments of others to be flawless or impeccable or final, especially if the judgment is corrupted and the life is corrupted by sin. We have to weigh everything out. And that's why he goes back to this and says, the Lord has the final say on the day of judgment. We don't take that to mean that nobody can ever make judgments about anything, that we can never say anything is wrong, or we have to wait until the final judgment to let the Lord sort everything out. Because later on in this very same letter, Paul is going to require the church in Corinth to bring God's final judgment into the present reality and, to, and tells the church to not make, uh, for them to not make judgments about the wicked lawless people, puts the whole church in danger, puts everybody in danger of judgment. But here in this case, in, in this specific context, the Corinthians have no footing to bring charges against Paul. And he tells them that. And he says, you know what? I'm going to let the Lord judge me on this one. He continues in verse 5. He says, therefore judge nothing before the time of the, uh, uh, until the time the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. You see, it's only God's judgment that reveals the hidden things like the counsels of the heart. It's only God that can see into a person to discern their motives for what they're doing. For, you know, why are you doing this? What, what? Often we don't know why we're doing what we're doing. Sometimes I feel like a two or three-year-old when you ask them, why did you do that thing? And they say, what do they say? I don't know. I don't know why I did it. And then we think of ourselves, why did, why did I say that? I don't know why I said that. And you, I don't know. I can't, I can't discern my motives 
rightly. Well, see, only God's judgment exposes perfectly the hidden things of the heart. And that's why one of the biggest flaws of human judgment is that we can't see into the heart or mind. We can see what a man is doing, but even he himself can't perfectly figure out what's going on in his own life. So we leave room for God to work. We understand his judgment is final and it is perfect. And if we err, we err on the side of mercy ordinarily. But in the very next chapter, Paul's going to address this issue. We're going to have to get into this next week where Paul addresses the problem of incest and adultery with one of the families in the church and he requires them to do something about it. But he's not being inconsistent here. He's not saying, well, you don't know the guy's heart. You really can't judge him. You know the guy who's you know, going out with his stepmom uh, and committing adultery with her. He, he just, I don't know what's going on in his heart, and maybe you just give him some more time. You really can't judge him. No, he doesn't say that at all. Open, shameless adultery that the person is proud of isn't something that requires a lot of wrestling and figuring out what to do about uh, you, you have to put them outside of the church. You have to put the unbeliever outside of the church in the hopes that they will repent and return. But of course, not everything is adultery. Not everything is incest. There are different kinds of situations and human judgment alone is insufficient. Now, some of these Corinthians have one foot in paganism and one foot in the church, and they think they have the wisdom of both worlds giving them uh, the right or even the duty to start handing out judgments. By their standards, Paul doesn't measure up to what they think a Christian teacher should be like, and so they pass judgment on him. And Paul exhorts them to stop this and accept his authority. Let's pick up in verse 6, and uh, we'll read a few verses from there. Verse 6. <clears throat> now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You're already full. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign for that, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of this world, the offscouring of all things until now. In the, uh, in the first century before we had 24-hour news coverage, before we had embedded reporters with uh, military, you, you only found out if your army won a war, if they came back from the battle all in one piece, mostly in one piece. You only found out that we were victorious in battle when you saw them coming home carrying the spoils of victory. And one of the spoils of victory that was the most striking image was that line of weary, injured, dirty prisoners cuffed and tied together, trailing along behind the army as they marched into the city. It was a sign of your total victory and dominance over the other city and over the other people, the fact that you had prisoners and you're bringing them back with you. We have your people. That's the symbol. We have your people and we can do anything we want with them. That's, 
That's the image. The image of those prisoners trailing behind the victory parade, the victorious army, the image of those prisoners is what Paul is projecting here when he describes the apostles as men condemned to death, a spectacle, uh, fools, poorly clothed, beaten and homeless, defamed, the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things. He uses all these words here. Being an apostle, Paul says, is not one of these jobs where you get to be paraded around in fine clothes and you know, servants feed you grapes and uh, they fan you with big palm branches. That's not, that's not the life of the apostle, Paul says. He says, look at the end of the triumph march and there you see what an apostle looks like. That's what being an apostle looks like. They've gotten the impression that being a Christian, and especially a Christian teacher, ought to bring some kind of prestige, some kind of celebrity status and fame. They want a certain image to go with the one that, uh, that, that they followed. They wanted that man that they followed to have a certain image. And because Paul was not a charismatic orator, he wasn't a polished celebrity, they thought there must be something wrong with Paul. And so he challenges that head on. He draws on everything that he has said to condemn worldly wisdom. And he explains to them that the ideal that they have of a teacher is not one that he's aiming for. What they have in their mind is, a, is an image that they think he's shooting for and failing at. And when he says, look, I'm not aiming at that at all. What I'm looking at and what I'm aiming for is over here. There's a dissonance between the kind of faith that Paul has been modeling for them and the values that they have embraced. He's been a fool. He's been weak. He's been dishonored. But they've been acting as if they were wise, as if they were strong, and if they were honored. They're puffed up with pride, though they have no basis whatsoever to be proud of anything. What do they have that they haven't been given, Paul says. It's like bragging that you have blue eyes or bragging that you were born left-handed. These are things you can't control. These aren't things you earned. So where's the boasting? All that they have has been given to them. And yet they imagine themselves to be some kind of royalty as for some kind of elite on earth. Paul deflates their pride and their arrogance and brings them back down to earth. He says, as far as the world is concerned, our place isn't at the front of the triumph parade. We're at the back, which is, by the way, where Jesus was. He says, I really wish you were king so that we could sit on a throne next to each other. But now, for now, we're the least of men. We're the most foolish, and we need to get used to that. Things are going to get sorted out in the day of judgment. But for now, we're nobodies. We're, we're, we're at the end of the line. In the last section here, Paul's sternness, though, gives way to tenderness once again. Verse 14, and we'll read to the end. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach you everywhere in the church. Now, there are some puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness. 
Now, imagine this letter being read to the Corinthian Christians for the first time. It's read on a Sunday morning, we can assume. It's read in church. And as you sit in the congregation, you hear some of the things that Paul has said over the last few paragraphs. I have no doubt that you would have heard somebody in the chair or, or pew behind you, assuming they probably sat on the floor or on cushions. But imagine hearing somebody behind you mutter under their breath, who does he think he is? Who... Where does he get off speaking to us this way? What right does he have to say these things? Paul knows that that's likely going to be the response. So he cuts that off at the pass. He says, I'm saying these things to you as a father speaking to his beloved children. You might have had 10,000 instructors, but only one father. In fact, there's even better word here. Instructors is literally babysitter. He says, you might have had 10,000 babysitters, but you've only got one father. You know, a, a babysitter... Is just somebody you hire for a few hours to keep the children from destroying the house while you're gone. If you come home and the house is still there, the babysitter has done their job. That's it. That's all they have to do. Uh, but Paul is implying that that's what all the other teachers in the city of Corinth are like. They're, they've all just been babysitters, but I'm your father. And it's because of my work, Paul says, that there is a church there. I'm the one that have brought you into the faith, and that ought to count for something. You want to say, who does he think he is? Well, that's who I am. I'm the one who is your father in Christ. Now, now he ought to be able to say at this point, and I'm surprised, you know, if, if he were us, he might have said, because I said so. That's why. That, that he would put that right there. His investment in them has bought him a little credit, and that ought to get a little judgment of charity from those who are thinking bad about him and talking bad about him. He's built up so much relationship and equity with him that he can say, even imitate me. In verse 16, he says that very thing. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Remember, in the ancient world, virtually nobody anywhere had ever seen People like Jesus, like Peter, like James and Paul and Stephen, nobody had ever seen people live the way that they live. Nobody had ever seen people giving up themselves like this, living lives of self-sacrifice, of refusing to play the power games that everybody else played. These guys were very different and the differences mattered. It mattered here because Paul is modeling Jesus. He hadn't only done it in Corinth, this is how he lived and taught everywhere. And it looks like they've forgotten it or they've taken it all for granted. So he wraps up this section. He says, now some of you are acting all puffed up and arrogant and talking big, like I'm not gonna hold you accountable for what you've been saying and doing. But I am coming, he says, you need to know this, that the kingdom of God is more than words. You've been full of words. The philosophers have words. The rabbis have words. Enough of words. You've been running your mouths unchecked for too long. The gospel is more than just talk. It's power. Power to change your lives and transform your homes and your city. Well, you're acting as if all that matters is, are these debates about who got baptized by whom. And the last thing he says is, as your father, I'm coming. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? or in love and a spirit of gentleness. Now, I'm inclined to think that maybe he's writing that with a smirk, that maybe he's being a little playful with them, relieving the tension before he gets into the heavier stuff. He's not really gonna go to Corinth and hand out spankings. Everything he has said in this last section has been tender and loving. Of course he wants to come to them in love, and that's how he intends to come, but he's giving them a not too subtle reminder of who he is. Now, how do you want me to come? Do you want me to come in love or do you want me to come with a rod? Come on, guys. How do you want me to come? 
Well, when Paul was in Corinth, remember, he set up shop and he worked for a living as a tent maker and a leather worker while he was there in Corinth. Not because he, he didn't think pastors and missionaries should be paid for their work. He did, obviously. But he didn't want to give them the impression that he was just there to make a buck off of them. He was a servant. He was an under rower. He was a steward. He was a, 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 a slave of Christ. And he didn't want anybody to look at him as someone who was seeking prestige or status or worldly respectability. But what that meant for Paul was that he wasn't going to have a comfortable or easy life. He was a great scholar. He was a great writer and a great teacher. But imagine him in Corinth working these long, hot, sweaty, stinky days. Have you read about the process of, of tanning hides and leather in the ancient world? It's a stinky, sweaty, hot process. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul doing this? And then haggling with the price of a tent, uh, with a customer over the price of a tent, wrapping up a purchase, making change, telling the customer to have a nice day. All of this while he's laboring in the gospel as well. It was, it was because this, of this blue-collar dimension of Paul that some in the church were embarrassed by him. But, but he was doing this so as not to be a burden to them. This was the attitude and the demeanor he carried from city to city. And what he desires of the Corinthians is that they imitate him and not despise him for this. He, he says, imitate me in this. And since this letter has been preserved for us, and since it's been canonized in the New Testament, the instruction for us uh, is, is for us as well. He's saying that to us, imitate me as I follow Jesus. Well, the whole theme of this chapter is the exercise of proper judgment and the weakness of uninformed, flawed human judgment. The people who can judge rightly according to God's law, the people who have heaven's standards guiding them, the people who can think clearly are the people who have life and blessing and order and stability. Everyone else is stumbling in darkness and confusion. So how can we exercise right judgment and teach our children to formulate consistent Christian responses to the corruption that is around us? Very quickly, Paul gives us in this chapter three major criteria that we use when we make judgments. The first is a healthy suspicion of the world's distorted value system. The second criteria, the second uh, filter for our judgment is, is the authority of God's word. And the third that he gives us, as he says, imitate me, is the biblical theme of the suffering servant. The crucified one is the glorified one. Three filters that we run all of our judgments through. I'm going to hit these very quickly and uh, very briefly. So much more to say, and I'm just going to give them to you in this, uh, this fashion. One, the first filter of our judgment, to make sure that we're thinking through things correctly. The first filter, the first criteria is this, this presuppos presupposition that the world's value system is distorted. Distorted, in fact, is putting it lightly. I, I wish I had a better word. When I talk about the world, and I'm talking about the world's value system and the world's message, I'm talking about the institutions of unbelief that are set in opposition to Jesus. That's what I mean when I say the world. The world is not neutral. The world is not benign. The world is engaged in total, constant warfare against Jesus and his church. The world's values, its definitions 
of right and wrong. It's evaluations of power and weakness. It's understanding of creation order, including the glories of men and women. All of this is corrupt. It's disordered. It's diseased. It's broken. It's impotent. They cannot fix, therefore, what is broken. They cannot save what is lost. They cannot deliver what is enslaved. What they call cool is diseased. What they call cute is corrupt. And this has to be your starting point, that the things you are being taught by the world's institutions, the things that you are being lectured on, the values that you are being called to embrace are twisted and perverse, and you cannot trust them, nor can your children. We have to be suspicious at least suspicious, if not totally dismissive of the world's value systems. Don't be naive. They are distorted. They are corrupt. That's the first thing. That's the first filter for all of our judgments is where am I getting this idea? Where did this come into my head? You think you're a blank slate, but you're not. You've absorbed so much from the world that is set in opposition to Jesus and his church. You've absorbed these things and you make judgments based on these things and your judgments are flawed because your starting point is flawed. You've, you've absorbed it and you're just spitting it back out without thinking, wait a minute, where did I get that? Oh yeah, that's broken, that's twisted, that's corrupt, that's diseased. That's the first, that's the first thing. The second filter, in contrast, we can and must trust in and depend upon the absolute authority of God's word. In, in verse 6, Paul talks about the things that were committed to himself and Apollos. And he says, we set this example before you not to go beyond what is written. In other words, God's word is sufficient. We're not imposing a new set of extra biblical standards on you, standards which are mostly informed by the world if we were to do that. We're in an age here in, in studying uh, the, the life of the Corinthian church and the letter of Paul to them. We're, we're looking at an age, well, they didn't have the gospels yet. They didn't have all the epistles. They've got the Old Testament scriptures. They're getting the Bible in real time through the mail. They're getting the Bible through what Paul is writing them. And Paul points to them, uh, he, he points them to what is written, and he points to the gospel as their ultimate authority. And so that for them and for us, every thought pattern that we develop and the behaviors that we cultivate and the way we conduct our business must be informed by the scriptures. We cannot trust our own judgment. We aren't comparing ourselves to ourselves. We are opening ourselves up to the light of scripture. So the filter one is... The world's wisdom is distorted. The second filter is God's law is not distorted. All of our judgment is submitted to the authority of what God says. The third filter, the last filter, is an application of the previous two. And that is the theme of the suffering servant that Paul puts in front of the Corinthians in his own life. Paul offers his own life as a living model of the suffering and death of Jesus. He pours himself out for the church but in, in the process of him pouring himself out for them, they've come to despise him. And they, they're ashamed of him rather than loving him. Why is that? Well, it's because they're worldly. And the world has always ultimately valued power over weakness, exaltation over shame, riches over poverty. And Paul's life flies in the face of that because Paul's life is lived in light of the cross. The cross turns every attitude, every belief, every philosophy of man upside down and becomes the touchstone of every single evaluation we make. And remember, the cross in this context, in the way that Paul lived it, the cross is not a doormat. The cross is not a surrender. It's not a capitulation. The cross is a capstone 
for Jesus of a life lived according to God's law that's pleasing to God, that's an important component. And so whatever we evaluate as true, admirable, desired, whatever we evaluate as loving or kind must be consistent with the life of the man on the cross. If it is not consistent with the cross, it is not consistent with the mind of God. And it is therefore false and distorted and has no merit. If what you define as success is incompatible with the cross, then what you define as success is worldly and corrupt and doomed to judgment. If your version of living your truth, of being who you want to be, of following your own dreams does not like, uh, look like the cross, if it despises the way of self-sacrifice, if it, if it resists putting your own comfort ahead of the blessing of others, it's not Christian. It's not pleasing to God. It will never bring you glory or happiness or order or life. You see, these are the things that we use to judge rightly. We have a healthy overriding suspicion of human judgment, worldly wisdom. We have an absolute unquestioning submission to God's authority in his word, which produces life. And this life that it produces looks like the shape of the cross. And we evaluate everything. We, we discern everything in the light and the work of Jesus. It's only with these things in place that we can even begin to trust in our own judgment or anyone else's. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for uh, this letter that we're working our way through. Give us clarity in your Holy Spirit as we are getting into difficult things and difficult subjects in this epistle. But you've given to us uh, these things to us for our life and for our blessing and for our maturity. And so, Father, give us by your spirit the strength to uh, receive them. Uh, Father, now bless us as we go throughout the rest of this worship service that all things that we say and do might honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.